Well, let's turn one more time to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And we'll consider this last petition in what we know as the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer. Let's just read the entirety of the prayer once again. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You've seen in your bulletin this morning an address that was given on this date 20 years ago behind this pulpit by Danny Kohler at the time. And I'll just be honest, I don't really know anything about Danny Kohler other than that he preached here on November the 6th of 2002. And uh, that now he's at a point where he's retired from ministry due to his health. But this is what he said here 20 years ago. That was a Wednesday night at the conclusion of a, of a revival meeting here. He said, 2,000 years ago, our Heavenly Father brought forth upon the earth a New Testament conceived in the mind of God and dedicated to the proposition that all people who would believe in this New Testament, Jesus Christ, would not perish but would live forever. Now, we are engaged in a great spiritual war, testing whether our family or any families who claim the name of Christ can endure. We have met today at one of the battlefields of this war. We have come together to worship the one who gave his life that we might have eternal life. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. We sit here in a church that is 87 years old. Our great-grandparents, our grandparents, our parents have worshipped here. They struggled. They overcame Satan. They endured. We should not add or detract from what they did. We may have forgotten much that they said, as has the world, but our presence here today testifies of what they did. It is for us, the living, to be dedicated to the unfinished task that lies before us, to stand before God and man and to declare our devotion to and for the cause of Jesus Christ, to highly resolve that this church under God and the leadership of His Holy Spirit shall have a new birth of spiritual freedom, a revival, and that this church with Jesus as our head shall love, minister, and pray for all the people that enter our doors, and in so doing shall not perish from this earth. May we determine in our hearts today to be found faithful until the day Jesus returns and calls his church out to forever reign with him. Amen and amen. Now, some of you may have been here when that address was given. I found it in a stack of papers, um, and it just happened to be close to the, the date that we decided to include it today. But that charge, that challenge, is one that still stands. We are today still meeting on a battlefield. 
We are still engaged in a spiritual war. If anything, that war over the last 20 years has intensified. It has required more of us. More devotion, more sincerity. There are still lost people going to hell. There are still churches that are declining and will shut their doors if things do not change. There are still people who have heard the gospel but have refused to believe it. And friends, we are still engaged in that war. And we must commit ourselves afresh regularly, lest we forget, to fight this fight. And our most powerful weapon, our most powerful resource that we have in this fight is prayer. We've been talking about prayer for several weeks now, and some of you are thinking, how could he drag the Lord's Prayer out this long? But I have. But it's for a reason. Because we must pray. We can do a lot of things, and I've said this before, and I'll keep saying it. We can do a lot of things. We can schedule programs. We can uh, plan events. We can have church services. But unless the things that we do are led by the Holy Spirit of God, and unless He works through those things to bring sinners to repentance, it's all in vain. It's useless. There's absolutely no point in us getting up on this rainy Sunday morning after the time change and wanting to lay in the bed. It doesn't matter if they say you get an extra hour or not. It makes you just want to lay in the bed, right? There was absolutely no point in you making the effort to get up and be here today if the Holy Spirit does not work in our midst. If God does not make himself known to us and let us see his power, his presence, his work, it's a waste of time. And we can't manufacture that. We can't make that happen. Listen, I grew up around churches that they had killer choirs, they had good music, and they could do a key change at just the right time in the service, and man, people would flood down to the front. And it's just an emotional pull. You just get worked up in the moment and you run down front and just do whatever the preacher says you're supposed to do. People crying all over the place. There might have been some sincere people in those crowds. But we can't truly manufacture the work of the Holy Spirit. We can't make eternal change. So how do we get it? How do we get to a point that we see God's work in our lives and in our church and in our community for that matter? It only happens through prayer. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, you will ask for whatever you desire and it will be done for you. You know why? Because if you're abiding in him and his word is abiding in you, you know what kind of things you're going to desire? You're going to desire the same things that God desires. So friends, I'm calling this church to pray. 
And, and the danger of, of looking at a, a passage of Scripture that's so familiar is that we just glaze over and we hear it and we say, yes, our Father in heaven, yes, hallowed be your name, yes, your kingdom come, your will be done. I know all that, I've heard it. And we can move on and we can leave. But we don't preach sermons, we don't listen to sermons, and we don't read Bible passages just so we can get up and walk out the door unchanged. And so my prayer is, is that we will respond to this prayer, this command of Jesus. He says, in this manner, therefore, pray. It's a command. That we will obey it. That we will shape our prayers, not according to all the physical needs and all the things that we want to see God do, but we will shape our prayers according to how God has instructed us to pray in His Word. And when we pray for the things that God wants us to pray for, we can expect to get answer to prayer. And so He's commanded us these things. He's commanded us to pray to our Father in heaven. It's important. We must know who it is we're praying to. He is our Father. He's made us His children. Our prayers, if nothing else, should begin with worship at the thought of God our Father. He is in heaven. He is highly exalted. He is worthy of all our praise. And we don't need to ask for a thing until we've acknowledged who He is. But the things He commands us to ask for, those first things, pertain to what He wants. He says, hallowed be your name. We need to pray that God's name would be made holy, that God's name would be made known. We had truck or treat on Monday night. People come through. We give them candy. We give them little cards that say Simmons Grove Baptist Church on it, and they leave. And we hope that they hear the gospel or read the track or come back to our church or or something like that. But you know what? It's not about the little cards that say Simmons Grove Baptist Church. It's not about making our name known. It's about people coming to know the name of the God who made them and wants to save them. If somebody comes here and they hear the gospel and God saves them and they live closer to another Bible-believing church and they decide to go there, I say, praise God, go on. It's not about us. It's about His name. May your name, O Lord, be regarded as holy. When we go out and start our day, is that in our mind that today I want God's name to be made known in me and through me. He commands us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These are what some people call kingdom prayers. We want to see people come to know God as their king. We want to see people saved. What lost people are you praying for right now? We can pray, Lord, at the end of our prayers, tag on the Lord, save the lost, in Jesus' name, amen. But no, who specifically do you know? What neighbor of yours, what co-worker of yours is lost that you are praying by name that they will be saved? That they will be brought into God's kingdom and be born again? We pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we could look at that a couple of ways. One, we could say, God, whatever happens in my life, whatever circumstances come my way, Lord, your will be done. And that's a good prayer. But we could also pray, Lord, in my obedience to you, the things I choose to do, may your will be done. Just as it is in heaven. And then we move on to the things that we need. Give us this day our daily bread. We express that dependence on God to take care of us and to meet our needs, recognizing that we're nothing without Him. 
We confess our sins and we say, forgive us, Lord, our debts. Forgive our sins as we forgive our debtors. It comes hand in hand as we're forgiving those who sin against us. We can come to God with confidence that he will cleanse us, that he will wash us, that he will free us from our sins and take care of those ways in which we failed him. Then we come to this, this last petition today and Jesus tells us to pray this. He says, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And there are three things that I've written down that I think this prayer expresses, and I'll try to be clear about those as I go along. But the one thing I think this prayer expresses is a concern for our future sins. You see, in verse 12, we're, we're concerned about those sins we've already committed. Lord, forgive us our debts. Those things that we've done that have displeased you, those ways we've violated your law, your commands, forgive us. And what does Scripture say? That if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can have confidence that when we come to God and confess our sins, that we can come and have good standing. That He does not hold those things against us. God is not a grudge-holding God against His children. But that He will forgive us. He won't hold those things against us any longer. But then we come and we say, Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We're looking ahead to those things that we might be tempted to do in the future. Those sins we haven't committed yet. And we don't want to commit you see, a Christian or someone who professes to be a Christian who says, yes, I asked Jesus to forgive my sins. I'm clean. I'm washed. I'm pure. Now, I'm going to just go ahead with my life. And if I sin again, I'll ask him to forgive me again. And I'm just not going to worry about it. I have reason to believe that you might not be a Christian if you're not concerned about sinning in the future. I turn to Romans 6. We'll spend a little bit of time in Romans 6 and 7 this morning. But go to Romans 6 for now. Romans chapter 6, Paul says this in verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, chapter 5 ended that the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. It doesn't matter how much sin you have, how much you have violated God's law, there is more grace than you have sin to cover it. And we praise God for that. God praise you for your grace, that marvelous grace that's greater than all our sin. But we might be tempted to say, well, if God is so gracious and he has more grace than I have sinned, then it's okay if I sin because God has grace. Seems logical to me. But Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The New King James just says, certainly not. God forbid. May it never be that we should just go on sinning because we know that God is gracious. That is blasphemy. That is offensive to God. 
he says this in verse 2, How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Are you a Christian? Have you been crucified with Christ? Then you're dead to sin. You're dead to sin. How can you go on saying, oh, well, I'll just go on in my sin. You're dead to it. You died with Jesus. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Some of you, when you were baptized, you went down in the water and the preacher said something like, as we are buried with Him in the likeness of His death, so are we raised in the glorious beauty of His resurrection. And what did that symbolize? When you went down into the water, that you died to your old self. You died to sin. You died to your old way of living. And as you were raised from the water, it's a symbol of that new life that God has given you in Christ. That you are born again. You have a, a new nature. You're a new creation in Him. You're dead to that old way of living. That's not who you are anymore. He says in verse 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. And we could go on and read through that passage, but the point is this, is you can't just be oh, say, oh, well, God forgave me those sins in the past and everything else in the future is fine, He'll forgive me again. No, this prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, is a prayer asking God to keep you from sin. That prayer expresses a concern for potential future sins. I think this prayer also expresses, secondly, a distrust of your own self. A distrust of your own self. If you're still in Romans 6, just flip the page to, to chapter 7. Paul says here, beginning in verse 15, he says, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, what? how much good dwells? Nothing. Nothing good dwells in my flesh. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. 
Do any of you have this conundrum, this problem in your own thinking, in your own spirit, this war that's going on that you, you want to please God, but your flesh wants to do what it desires, and, and it's a constant battle, and sometimes you say, I don't know why I do that, I don't want to do it, or I don't, I don't know why I don't do that, because it's what I really want to do, because I'm a Christian, and we drive ourselves mad. Okay, it's just me then, thanks. I'm fully convinced of what Paul said, that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. You know how much I trust myself to resist sin? Absolutely none at all. None. So you know what, why I pray the way Jesus commanded me to pray? Because I don't want to sin. Lord, do not lead me into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. Paul went on in verse 24 in chapter 7, and he said, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's my life verse, guys. I'm going to start writing that on my cards. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But he gives us an answer. He doesn't leave us hanging. Verse 25, he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. God has given us a new nature, new desires. And even though that we want to do what's right, our flesh doesn't want to go along with that, does it? Jesus told his disciples in the garden, he said, watch and pray. Why? That you enter not into temptation. Now let me just say a little something about this, this verse. He says, lead us, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, it's interesting to pray do not lead us into temptation because surely God wouldn't do such a thing, right? Do we have to ask God not to lead us into temptation because God would lead us to sin, to be tempted to sin? Let me just quote Paul like you hear again, God forbid. Because James chapter 1 uh, says this, he said, uh, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So I don't think he's asking us, Jesus, don't, or God, don't lead us into temptation. Don't tempt us to sin because you might. Because the scripture is clear that God does not tempt anyone to sin. He says in the next verse in James, he says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So when you're tempted to sin, don't ever blame God. And you really can't even blame the devil. He might present the opportunity, but James says when each one is tempted, he's drawn away by his own desires. You see, temptation comes at us from a couple of different directions. One way it doesn't come is from God. But the devil provides opportunity. He'll, he'll, he'll give us a reason to sin and, and make his argument, make his case for it. And then on top of that, it, we couldn't just say, no, God's way is better. But we've got something inside of us that says, that actually sounds really good. I want that. It's that old human nature, that flesh. So something you need to know about this prayer, do not lead us into temptation. That word temptation, it's more of a neutral word. When we think the word temptation, we think of something, uh, we always think of the negative sense that we're being tempted to do something we shouldn't do. 
But it's a neutral word that could translate either way to either temptation, yes, to sin, but it could also go as to being tested or tried in a positive way. And so really what happens is we enter into testing, we enter into trial, and, and if we, you know, if you go take a test, what's your options? You either pass or fail, right? And sometimes we enter into testing, we're tried, and that opportunity to sin is presented, and we fail, we give in to that temptation. But sometimes we go in and we say, no, God is better, God's ways are better, I don't want that, and we find that that was just a test, something to try our faith and strengthen it. So I think what we're praying for here is, is we recognize that we are going to be tempted to sin in the future. We distrust ourselves and we say, so God, as much as possible, don't let us enter into the place of testing. I think it's similar to what Jesus prayed in the garden. He said, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. If there ever was anyone who entered a place of testing, it was Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. He said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. It's okay to pray that way. It's okay to say, don't lead us into temptation. He says, but nevertheless, not what I will, but as you will. Not my will, but yours be done. And so the second half of verse 13 sort of clarifies that for us. Do not lead us into temptation, Lord. We don't want to be tested. We don't want to be tried. We're afraid we might fall into sin. But when we are tested, deliver us. Deliver us from the evil one. And that's the third thing I think this prayer expresses is this a dependence on God. It expresses dependence on God. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul said, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. There's nothing that, that any of us face that someone else hasn't already experienced. When we go through testing, when we go through trial and temptation, the devil's first attack, a lot of times, is you're all alone. You can't talk to anybody about this. You're the only one who's ever experienced this kind of hardship. God has deserted you. He's, yeah, he's, he's, he's been faithful for everybody else, but he's going to desert you here. But Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able God may allow you to be tempted. He may allow you to be tested, but He will not take you further than you can go. Why? How do we know? Because He says this, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Yes, you may be tempted. Yes, you may be tested and tried. But in every temptation, every test, every trial, every hardship, no matter what it is, God always gives you, if you are His child, the resources that you need to overcome it. You have the Holy Spirit within you. He Himself, God Himself, indwells you and goes with you through these trials. And what do we do? We pray. We pray, Lord, don't lead us into temptation, but when you do, Lord, here I am right here in the heat of a trial, in the heat of a temptation, deliver me. Deliver us 
from the evil one. And God has promised he will make a way of escape. He will. A couple of examples of this. Two ways to live, really, when it comes to temptation and evil. One is a scene that we see in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden. It's a perfect environment. They have all of this food. They have the companionship of one another, Adam and Eve. They're comfortable and everything's great. God comes and walks with them in the cool of the day. But they've got one commandment, right? Don't eat the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Don't eat it, but in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So the tempter comes along, deceives the woman. She eats, comes to Adam. The Bible doesn't say that Adam was deceived. He willfully chose to rebel against God in this perfect environment. He has everything that God has given him. His wife, his food, he has the presence of God with him every day. Yet he failed the test and he sinned. Skip forward a lot of years. We won't have that debate today. In a wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has been led there by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. Now, his scenario is totally opposite of Adam's. Adam was in a garden and Jesus is in the wilderness. He's being beaten by the heat, the, that dry, hot air. He's out there for 40 days. Adam's got everything to eat that he could ever want. Jesus has had nothing to eat. He's fasted for 40 days. He's weak. He's tired. Adam had the companionship of his wife there in the garden. Jesus is all alone. But one thing is the same in these two stories, and that's the tempter. Satan comes along and on three occasions tempts Jesus to sin. Adam, in his perfect environment, failed the test. But Jesus, in the worst possible conditions, does what Adam could not do. And he fulfills all righteousness by resisting Satan in your behalf. We think about how that Jesus died for us, and certainly he did, but Jesus also lived for you. He knew that you would be tempted to sin and that you would fail. He knew that you would inherit Adam's nature and be a sinner. You're not a sinner because you sin, you sin because you are by nature a sinner. But Jesus came and did what Adam couldn't do. He did what we could never do. And he lived his entire life sinlessly. At every point, he was tempted like we are, Hebrews says. But he was without sin. He fulfilled all righteousness in your behalf. And then he was qualified to make payment for your sin by dying for you. He didn't have to die for any sin of his own because he had none. So he died for yours. He took the punishment for your sin and mine when he died on the cross. And he, he, he cried out, it is finished. It is paid in full. The work is done. So now you can be forgiven for all of your sins. He rose from the dead to guarantee you life 
and salvation. So you've been born again. You have the promise of forgiveness. You have a home in heaven if you're a child of God. But more than that, even now, His Spirit indwells us. And He will continue to give deliverance and continue to bring you through temptations and trials that we face as we trust Him every single day. Yes, Jesus saved you. Yes, He delivered you from the evil one and that you don't have to go to hell. You can go to heaven and be with God forever. But He will deliver you even now in this life as you walk with Him. As we pray, Oh Lord, do not lead us into temptation. But deliver us from the evil one. All throughout our talk of the Lord's Prayer, we've talked about praying in this expanding circle, right? You can pray this for yourself. Lord, don't lead me into temptation. I want to please you with my life. I don't want to sin. I want to stand firm. I know that my faith's going to be tested. So when it is, when my faith is tested, deliver me from the evil one. You can broaden that prayer and you can pray for your family. God, our family goes through trials. We see things happening all around us. Lord, we don't want to be tempted. We don't want to be tested. And so whatever way you can prevent that, God, we, or keep us from that, please do it. But when we are tested, my household, my wife, my sons, deliver us from the evil one. Don't let him destroy us. Don't let him destroy our home. That's exactly what he'd love to do. Marriages and families to tear them apart. But you pray, oh God, deliver us from the evil one. Broaden that circle a little bit and pray for this church. God, if we're going to be faithful, if we're going to do what you've called us to do, if we're going to get serious about prayer and evangelism and discipleship, we are going to come under attack. Satan will do everything he can to destroy us. Do not lead us into temptation, God, but deliver us from the evil one. Deliver our church. Hey, pray for your pastor while you're at it. Deliver him. From the evil one. Pray for our community. We see sin everywhere. People aren't ashamed of it. They flaunt it. Sin is something to be proud of. There are strongholds of Satan. There are uh, forces of, of, of Satan that are at work even in Pilot Mountain and Surrey County that are keeping people from hearing the truth of the gospel. And we have got to pray for our community. God, deliver us from the evil one so that they may hear the gospel and believe and that your church may go forth. Folks, we've talked a lot about prayer. And I'm going to talk some more about prayer. You're not off the hook yet. Listen, listen, will you pray? I, I preach up here and I throw a broad net just to kind of hit everybody. But you point this right at yourself and say, will I pray? Do I seriously want to be close to God? Do I seriously want to see God's will done? Do I want to see God do a work in my life, in my family, in my church, in my community? Do I want to see people saved? Do I really want to do away with my sin? Do I want to be delivered from this thing that persists in my life? And you know whatever that is. 
Will you pray? I hope you will. Let's bow together. God, we need you. We are desperate for your help. And Lord, as I pray for sinners to be saved and to see your work done in our church and in our community, Lord, one of my own prayers is that you would move us to pray. I pray that we would pray. Burden your people to, as Peter says, be serious and watchful in our prayers. Lord, when we, when we do get serious, we will be, come under attack. We will be attacked. The devil and his demons will do everything they can to keep this church from being what you want it to be, from doing what you want us to do. It will keep each end, he will try everything he can to keep each individual in these pews right where they are. No steps forward. Lord, I pray that right now your spirit would work in each heart. Every person who hears me now. That if they have not been born again. That your spirit would make that clear to them. And that they would be saved. That they would turn from their sins and put their trust in Jesus alone. Right now. And that each of us who have been born again would be convicted and moved to pray, to seek your face, to seek your will, and to see your work in our lives and in our church. And I come asking this in the only name that has any weight, the only credible name there is, and that is the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.